At the age of 13, Dennis Kinlaw responded to a message by Henry Clay Morrison on entire sanctification. His encounter with Jesus Christ at the altar of Indian Springs Holiness Camp Meeting transformed his life. We hope you enjoy this message on holiness from Dr. Kinlaw. I have a friend that serves on a board that I happen to be on, and we meet once or twice a year for those uh, annual, semi-annual board meetings, and he's an interesting person, so if I can't, I always try to sit next to him, and we get some interesting conversations. But in one of the last times that I was with him, he said to me, uh, I have a story. It's a Baptist story, but maybe, maybe a Methodist can use it. He said there was a young Baptist preacher who came into a pet shop early on a Monday morning. And he looked at the owner of the pet shop and said, I have to have 75 mice, three rats, and 2,500 cockroaches, and I've got to have them by Wednesday week. Can you get them for me? The owner of the pet shop realized the guy was a bit upset, so he didn't question him too much, but he said, that may take a little doing. Well, he said, I'll be back next Monday morning to see if you've got them. So the next Monday morning, early in the morning, in came the young Baptist preacher. And he said, well, have you got them? And the owner of the pet shop said, it's amazing, I've got them. Seventy-five mice, three rats, and 2,500 cockroaches. But pastor... What under the sun are you going to do with them? Well, he said, I got fired a week ago last night. And when the chairman of the board of deacons fired me, he said, and when you leave the parsonage, leave it exactly like you found it. I shared that with a friend of mine who's a pastor. I won't tell you where. (laughs) And he said, you know, when I came to my current appointment, and he's a man in his 50s, and it's a reputable church in the conference, and has many desirable things about the appointment. He said, the chairman of the Pastor Parish Relations Committee ate lunch with me and gave me the key to the parsonage and told me where it was, and said, when I went in, he said, I could have left a trail across the floor if I'd had a broom for the cockroaches, because they had brought the orchid orchid people in and they said they were everywhere. So maybe there's some Methodist uh, connections with that. I want to do something this morning that uh, I've had to sort of take my courage in my hands to do because uh, I uh, am going to talk on the frontier of where my faith is instead of talk in terms of things that uh, I have uh, proven and tried over the years to the extent that I speak with a little sense of assurance and confidence. But one of the beautiful things to me about the Christian life is you never you never cease to have a frontier in your faith. And you find that if you, if there is authenticity there, you uh, still have more to learn because he's infinite and we're finite and we will never exhaust him. And that comes through in the scripture and as the years have passed, my interest in, in knowing it for my own self, for my own personal advantage, for my own spiritual fulfillment and help uh, has intensified. So let me give you a sort of a running shot at a, at a journey of faith. And it has some sort of weird things in it, but you stick with me as we move along. I remember I was working on a passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, the arrest of Jesus. I was working my way through the Gospel of John, and I was trying to deal with that passage. I suddenly became aware that that's a very remarkable passage. What could have been told in a verse or two, you get 12 to 14 verses to tell. We found, I found there was an absolute plethora of data, of detail in that account. You know how many stories there are in the Gospels that you have very little detail on. You just got the bone, bare bones of the story. That story is sort of loaded with detail, so I thought there must be some significant here, significance here. I noticed that we know where it took place, we know when it took place, we know what time of day it took place, we know pretty well who was there. In fact, we know the names of as many people here as about any place you can name in in the Gospels. We know of the personal conversation of Peter 
of and, or Jesus with uh, his interrogators, and we know the personal conversation of Jesus with Peter and so forth. So as I was looking at that, I suddenly became enamored with the fact about uh, Malchus and his ear. You remember how Peter, something, he said, time for somebody to do something. And you know, uh, I've gotten to the place where I get fright down my back when somebody says, it's time for somebody to do something. Peter pulled his sword and swung. And I guess the thing that intrigued me first is, we not only know the guy's name whom he hit, but we know where he hit him. He hit him on the ear, and we know which ear he hit. He hit his right ear. Now, I don't know whether Peter was left-handed or not, but if Peter was not left-handed, it's rather awkward to hit the other guy's right ear unless you're behind him. And I have a little trouble believing that Peter would have swung from behind knowing Peter. But anyway, we know that it was his right ear. Well, I got interested in that right ear, and suddenly I noticed something. You know what it says Cleopas's, uh, Malchus's job was? Malchus was the servant of the chief priest. Now, that term could be something like aide-de-camp or assistant or chief of staff. It may well be that he was the one who led the temple's delegation there to arrest Jesus. And then it, I kept on reading and read, you know where they took Jesus after they arrested him? They took him to Malchus's boss. And I thought I heard a conversation between Caiaphas and Malchus, saying, Malchus, how did it go? And Malchus said, well, it went fairly well. We got him. Well, he said, did you have any problem? Malchus said, well, not too much. You know, I expect that thing was sort of tender and he was feeling to see if it was still there. And so Caiaphas says, well, what kind of problem did you have? Well, he said, you know, that big fisherman, he pulled his sword and swung and Caiaphas broke in and said, well, did he hit anybody? Malchus said, yes, that's the strange thing. He hit me. And Caiaphas says, Malchus, you look all right to me. Well, he said, that's the problem. Do you think we got the right guy? And then the thought came to me. You know how these things come that you don't expect, that suddenly they're there. The thought, could it possibly be that Malchus's ear was Jesus' last love note to Caiaphas? Saying, Caiaphas, do you really want to go through with this? Now, I wonder what Caiaphas did with Malchus. Knowing me, I suspect that after about three days, he gave him a new assignment as far away from his presence as he could get him because it, there was that reminder that he had crucified a man who stopped in the middle of his arrest to heal a person who had been hurt. Now, you know, as I lived with that, I began thinking, are there Malchus's ears in our lives that we don't see? And since that time, I've begun to see them in most remarkable places. Are there evidences of his presence and his work that are right under my nose and I have never stopped to note them? Now, about that time, I found myself saying, how do you cross cultures? And how does a person from one culture communicate to people in another culture? And I thought, well, if the historic Christian Orthodox position on Christ as the second person of the Blessed Trinity is true, the greatest cross-cultural jump in history was when he came to us. And I thought, how did he make that jump? You remember that uh, he said to Nicodemus, I've talked to you about earthly things, and if you don't understand, how would you ever understand if I talked to you about heavenly things? I remember, remembered a story when I was a kid back in the 30s in the Reader's Digest about some American scientists working in the North Polar region. And they became very attached to one Eskimo. So they brought him down as a favor to New York City to let him see New York City. And then they took him back and left him in the polar region, totally unaware that they had blighted him for life because all the rest of his life he was known by all of his friends and all of his members of his tribe, as the crazy fool. Because when he came back and told them about New York City and their land of ice and snow, they said, that's impossible. He's telling us stories. 
And they called him a fool because when he told these mad stories, he looked as if he expected them to believe him. Now, if what we say about God is that the second person of the Blessed Trinity became one of us, that's quite a cross-cultural jump. So I thought, how did he communicate? You know, the reality is that a people's language is made up of what they've experienced. If you've never experienced it, you don't have a word for it. And so here we are, a people of time, and he comes from a world that's eternal. He, we are finite. He is, comes from, he is the infinite one. How does he use our language to talk about his world? So I sat down with the Gospel of John and began reading through to see how he did it. Now, I've learned something about me. If it's obvious, I will miss it. But I think that's a characteristic of most of us. My wife has gotten to the place where I say, Honey, I've lost something. She said, Have you looked under your nose? And usually she's on target. Now, uh, I was in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John before I realized the way Jesus did it. And it was in that story of the woman at the well. You will remember he looked at her and her shock. He said, would you give me some water to drink? Now, I don't need to give you the details of that story, but you know her shock. And she turned in astonishment and said, this is unbelievable, that you would even speak to me, and then you ask me for water out of my bucket? And he said, lady, if you knew who it was who was talking to you, you'd ask him for living water. Because the water you get out of this well, you're going to have to come back tomorrow and get more because you're going to be thirsty. But if you knew who was talking to you, you know that he has a water that once you drink it, you never thirst again. I thought, for heaven's sakes, isn't that interesting? Then there must be water in water. Then I got to the sixth chapter and I found there's bread and bread. I'm glad you're a bunch of preachers. I don't have to fill in all the interstices between what I'm saying. You know these stories. You remember they chased him for 24 hours and finally found him and said, why did you run away? He said, because you ate the bread, but you never saw the reality. Because the bread I gave you, you're going to be hungry tomorrow for. But the bread that you need is the bread which I have brought to you, and that, that's the bread of life. And except you eat this bread, you will never know eternal life. So I found there was bread and bread. I got to the eighth chapter and I found there's light and light. He said, I am the light of the world. I found also there's shepherds and there's shepherds. That shook me a bit because I've spent a good chunk of my life as a pastor and that's what a shepherd is. You remember Jesus looked at the shepherds of Jerusalem and that was the crowd he was talking to. And he said, uh, there's a difference between you and me. He said, shepherds keep sheep so they can eat or wear them. But the good shepherd keeps sheep so they can eat and wear him. This is my body which is broken for you and this is my blood which is shed for you. But there are shepherds and there are shepherds, but there's light and there's light. Let me go back to the arrest story. One of the things that intrigued me was John tells us that they took lanterns and torches to look for him. And I suspect John knew that he was speaking a parable, if I know John. And he was saying, we take lanterns and torches to go find the light of the world because we can't see the obvious. I got to the 10th chapter and I found the one that I laughed the most about. There are doors and then there's the door. Be interesting to try to figure how many doors you've been through today, wouldn't it? How many you go through in 24-hour period? But doors are very crucial. They're the only way you can get from where you are to where you need to be. And Jesus says, that's what I am. Only way you can get from where you are to where you need to be is through me. There are doors, but I am the door. So I began fi finding myself saying, for heaven's sakes, do you know it's almost as if he could start anywhere with anything and go from here to there, if you let me use spatial concepts about a non-spatial subject, he could take anything in this world and move and speak metaphorically of the world that you can't see, touch, or measure, the one from which he came and to which we all go. I thought, uh, 
You know, this world must, apparently he found it extremely compatible for his pedagogical purposes. And then I thought, you know, it's almost as if it were made for him. And then I found myself laughing because you know what John says? John says he's the one that made it, and Paul seconds it. And I thought, could it be, and I'm back to, Cle to Malchus's ear, could it be that he made our world and made our life and made our universe in such a way that there are thousands of witnesses to him that we're too blind or too busy or too preoccupied to see? So I looked at the Gospel of John for all these metaphors, and it, John is loaded with them. You don't have to wait till the fourth chapter to get to them. Third chapter, you've got the birth metaphor. Born once, born twice. Born from below, born from above. The first chapter is loaded with them. But anyway, as I looked at those, I noticed something. Now, I'm, I'm dumping on you stuff that it took me years to put together. So uh, uh, see if you can stick with me. You may be way ahead of me, and you may have already traveled this road. But suddenly I became conscious that most of his metaphors are from the created world, and they are used to speak of the uncreated they're from the world of time and space, and they're used to speak of the world beyond time and space, the eternal world. But I found there, too, that the scripture, if we take it seriously, says he ran the other way. He ran a reality that transcends time and space and spoke about space and time and this life, moved from the uncreated to the created. And you know what they are? One of them is the family. Because, you see, the scriptures teach, if we take the Christian doctrine of the Trinity seriously, Adam and Eve didn't have the first family. Now, at this point, let me say, this kind of thinking was very hard for me. I'd be interested, how many of you have seen this uh, video film that is used in a lot of management seminars on shifting paradigms? I'm convinced that, that it is very difficult for me to get out of the paradigm that I have of the gospel. And that there are things in scripture that I never see because my, they don't fit my paradigm. So I found myself saying, let me go back to Malchus's ears, saying, Lord, open my eyes to see so that my understanding of your truth is not limited to the paradigm that's been given to me. And that I think unconsciously, Unconsciously, that explains it. So uh, I began looking at uh, these, these eternal metaphors or realities, the marriage. Now let me, let me bring it down to where, it, uh, where my mind caught on. I thought I heard a conversation in the bosom of the Trinity one morning when God waked up, if you'll let me use heretical language. And when one person of the Trinity turned to the other and he didn't say, Morning God, a morning king, or morning lord, but one of them said father, and another one said son. And suddenly I thought, for heaven's sake, you know, everybody I've ever met has a family. The one thing we know about human beings is they don't come in singles, they come in clusters. And you've never met a person who doesn't have a parent. And could it be that God in his sovereign wisdom said, how should we put them together down there? And somebody in the Trinity said, let's put them together. Why not put them together the way we are? Because the second person of the Trinity comes out of the first person of the Trinity. John indicates his umbilical cord hasn't been cut yet. Because John indicates that Jesus draws, the second person of the Trinity draws his life out of the first person of the Trinity. He is the eternally being begotten son. And who you've got a feminine metaphor in the heart of the deity, you see. But nevertheless, uh, uh, everybody you've ever met has somebody that he can rightfully call father, mother, parent. I thought, for heaven's sakes, is that one of God's means of helping us to understand him? You see, I used to teach grammar, and so I think in these crazy ways. I was thinking about that woman at the well, there's water with a little W and there's water with a capital W. See, we use that uh, uh, device to 
move from the ordinary to the exceptional. There's uh, bread with a little b, and then there's bread with a capital B. And there's light with a little l, and there's light with a capital L, and there's doors with little d's, and there's the door with a big d, and there are ways with a little w, and then there's the way with a capital W. And I thought, could it be that everybody that's ever lived has a father with a little f because God wants everybody that lives to know the father with a capital F? And then I ran across William Temple's comment that the person who has the wrong concept of God, the more religion he gets, the more dangerous he is to himself. And I thought, could it be that God put us together hoping that the way he put us together we could understand him better. And then I came to that second one, and we could spend an hour on any one of these. But then I came to that second one. Doesn't It is not the family then, the model, the original, is in the very nature of deity. And the family is not a sociologically rooted institution. It is an ontologically, metaphysically institution rooted in the very nature of deity itself. Is that why the scriptures spend so much time on the family? And why their, meta, their use of that image is so rich? Okay. Now, uh, that is rooted in the nature of deity. And the second one I got was marriage. Now, I have to tell you how I got to that. Because, you see, we tend to think of marriage as a biological phenomenon and a sociological phenomenon. But, you see... If you take the close of the biblical story, the end of human history is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the two main characters are the Lamb and the church. And who is the Lamb? He is the one that was slain from before the foundations of the world. Well, what, for what was he slain? He was slain for his bride. Now, if he was slain from before the foundations of the world, then that metaphor transcends time. may not be rooted in the nature of deity, but it's rooted in the purposes of God for human history. So with that in my head, I thought, it's very interesting. Now, I'm going to come back to this in a few minutes and develop that a little more fully. But I thought, could it be that every, that every person you've ever met is either male or female? Because God had a, Cleop a Malchus's ear there. He wanted to communicate to us that our fulfillment is not in us. Our fulfillment is in another. And that he made us with a metaphor because he wants to be the fulfillment in our lives with a capital F. Because he is the spouse with the capital F ultimately. And I thought, for heaven's sakes, the world may be a whale of a lot more sacramental than I thought it was. <laughs> it may be that there's nowhere I can turn that I'm not bumping into something that is sacramental in character. Because he created the world and when he created it, good. And he never intended one of us to miss him, but he intended every one of us to know him. Now, with that thought, I got to thinking. And you see, I'm wondering... I'm moving. There's, 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 there's a line, but it may look like uh, it's wandering. I remember reading Archbishop Fulton Sheen earlier in my life, and he had the concept of the philosophia perennis, the perennial philosophy, the perennial truth. And I was interested, you know, that red line of truth that follows down all through human history. And one generation seems to be over here, and another generation it seems to be over there. And... Uh, Archbishop Sheen, Sheen said, oh no, it's human culture that moves this way, not the straight line. Well, there is a straight line in what I'm trying to say here. But let me tell you what the next thought that came to me was. Family. Marriage. Now, I've been very privileged. I grew up in a Christian home. My father was a lawyer. I hardly ever saw a day that I didn't see him reading scripture. And uh, he was not, I would not call him a pietist. He just wanted to be, he was an old Scot. And he wanted to be a biblical Christian. 
And he laid his Bible down on his law desk. I remember one day he came in at lunch and sort of chuckled. Said he had an interesting visit this morning. Had a prospective client with his family. And he laid out his case and I looked at him and said, you know, there's something in the Bible about that. And he flipped open his Bible and he said, I think I lost a good client. <laughs> but that was his desire. I had the privilege of that. My mother was a genuine Christian. I'm sure that her prayers have had a great deal to do with my own life. So when I think of family, I have the privilege of that, which many people have not had. Do you know I think it's made it far easier for me to think God correctly than other people? But I also have had a very rich marriage. Elsie and I have been married for 50 and a half years. And uh, she's a remarkable human being. God knew what I needed, and he took care of me, and she's taken care of me, too, <laughs> uh, in many, many ways. She's a tough one, a uh, tough one, but a committed Christian. So I've had those advantages. The two most intimate relationships I've ever known were with my father and mother. And then the most intimate relationship of those two without it. Now, uh, I thought, could it possibly be that God means that I'm supposed to have an intimacy with him deeper than the intimacy I had with my father and mother and the intimacy that I have with Elsie? Now, with that in mind, I was able to sort of begin to challenge my traditional paradigm. And let me tell you how I came out. How close does God want to be to you? And how close does God want me to be? Want to be to me? I pastored about 13 years. Uh, I was a college administrator for a number and a teacher for a while. I'm convinced that the noblest of all callings and the paramount one is the pastor's role. God's the coach and he has the right to stick people in any position he please, pleases. But the, but the highest, I don't say this to make points with you. I want to say, if Jesus Christ is the shepherd with a capital S, the noblest of all callings is the shepherd with a little S. That's what you are. So it's a privilege to be with you. But uh, what kind of a relationship of intimacy does God want with a pastor or with any of the rest of us? I began looking at Scripture to run it through. And so the first thing I did, of course, was look at the creation story. I was asked to teach a course in Old Testament theology, and I hadn't taught one in quite a while. And so you talk about sweating. I understand what one hour from disaster is. But I expect there have been preachers on occasion who've understood what that meant, too. But uh, uh, nevertheless, I found myself working. The book of Genesis opened up in a way, in a richer way than I'd ever had it open before. You know what the climax of the creative process was? The climax was when in the cool of the day, God came down and walked and talked with them for companionship. And I suddenly realized that the word walk is the key to the religion of the book of Genesis. It really isn't worship because there is no cult in the book of Genesis. And it for sure isn't justification because there is no law in the book of Genesis. And it isn't hope of heaven because there's no discussion of the life after death in the book of Genesis. It is a very time-bound book. But there's where the patterns are laid for you and for me. And you will remember, you've got Adam and Eve who walked with him. You've got uh, uh, Enoch who walked with him. And that mystical story, comment, and he was not, for God took him. You will remember Noah walked with him. And that's all Abraham did for the rest of his life after he met him. So that the religion of the book of Genesis is a, a personal friendship, dare I say, between God 
and these that uh, he walks with or will let him, let him walk with them. I wonder if that is not a primary pattern for us. Now, when you get to Moses, you get a nation established. And when you get the nation established, you get a legal system worked out. And now you've got a kingdom now, it's a kingdom of priests, but nevertheless, it is a kingdom. And the concept of kingdom comes in first there. And with that concept, you've got the legal system. And you've got a consciousness of sin. Did you know there's no discussion in the book of Genesis about the nature of sin? But now that you've got the kingdom, you've got it. Now, I think it is out of that that we began to get the concept of justification by faith. Because, you see, with Moses, you got the law. You got God and the law, and you got me. And I have to relate to that law. And God says, how'd you relate? And I have to say, I fell flat on my face and lived there. Uh, so he says, well, what can we do to save you now that you've broken my law? And it is a legal relationship. Now, there are some advantages in a kingdom because do you know what a king's business is? A king's business is to take care of his subject. You will notice that Paul, everywhere he went around the Mediterranean basin, didn't hesitate if it was to his advantage. Say, hold on, boys, I'm a Roman citizen. And if you deal with me wrongly, you got Caesar to deal with and his people straighten you out. You remember that protected him. There, you've got an added complication of the law, but you've also got some rights now, beginning, because we're citizens of a kingdom, and the king's business is to take care of his, his citizens. So uh, you get that developed extensively in the New Testament. The traditional interpretation of the book of Romans and the whole concept of the Reformation in justification by faith. How can I stand justified before the judge? who sits on the throne. And in that ancient world, the king and the judge were the same. How can I stand justified so that I am clear from my transgressions or my, my uh, crimes that I have committed against the law of God? Well, that's a little different than just walking, move from friendship to citizenship. But then you get a theme beginning to develop that's a little more intimate than that. You will remember that God began to talk about Israel as his son. And so you get the concept of fatherhood that develops only slowly in the Old Testament. And as it develops, you will remember it gets more intimate. You get to David and God says to David, he calls him his son, and you get son used individually instead of corporately. Because prior to that, Israel is God's child. Now you have an individual who is God's child. And then you get to the New Testament, and we get the concept that every person is a child of the Father. And you get the concept of new birth there. What God wants us to do is for each one to know him as Father. That struck a chord in our Father's heart. Wesley, didn't it? And his brother. You will remember when uh, he was writing his hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise. You remember, uh, how is it that the uh, last verse goes? My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father cried. And Wesley says, there was a day when I felt I was an enemy, and now I'm his son, now I'm his child, and I can call him father. Now that's an intimacy that most of the religions of the world know nothing about. I remember very well being in a conference in Methodist Church in Los Angeles, and one of the other speakers was uh, a woman whose husband had been a member of the cabinet in the government, one of the top cabinet positions in the government of a Muslim nation. This lady, there was a nobility about her and a regalness about her. 
She told about how uh, she made acquaintance with two Baptist missionaries. And they developed a bit of a friendship, and so she invited them to come and visit her. And so they were very pleased to have that kind of uh, reception. And so they shared with her what they were there for, and they gave her a New Testament. And she began to read. And as she began to read, she began to sense something that drew her. There was an allure in it. And as she was drawn, she began to think, there seems to be an intimacy here that I've never known with God. I'd like to know God. He's always been so distant and so far from me. And so she said, I kept reading. And she said, the day came when I decided if I could know God that intimately, I would change religions. And she said, how do I do it? And she came to, again to the Lord's Prayer. And she said, do you know the last obstacle I had to get over before I became a Christian was the first line in the Lord's Prayer. She said, I could not find the courage, the daring to look up and say those two simple words, our Father. Because he said, she said, you see, in my religion, I felt that if I were to use this earthly metaphor to describe him, it would be blasphemy. And I was sure he would strike me dead if I played that intimate a role with him. I remember the poignancy of that address as she told how her heart yearned. And to abbreviate it, the moment came when she said, I thought, it's worth, it's worth, it's worth the danger of trying. And she said, I looked up and said, Father. And she said, I collapsed in terror on the floor and waited to be stricken dead. But she said, no lightning came. And she said, slowly, I thought, I'm not dead. And she said, could it be that he loves me and cares for me the way I care for my child? And then she began to tell about the intimacy that she walked into with the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think every person that lives yearns for that kind of intimacy with God. And you and I are the ones who have the privilege of sharing with Him, that they can know Him that intimately. And as I say, isn't it interesting? You've never met anybody who doesn't have a mother and a dad. And we don't have time to go in that here, but you know, I think there is something about God that can be learned in the family that can be seen that can never be seen anywhere else. I do not believe there is anywhere in society where you see law and self-sacrificing love sit in the same chair. Let me put it theologically. I think a case can be made that the family is the only place where you see Sinai and Calvary joined in one human person except there are two. They sit at the two ends of the kitchen table. And I've decided that God's original seminary is the uh, kitchen table. Because the first person to say no to you and say it meaningfully, you dare not do that. The first person who brings law into your life is either the woman who went into the valley of the shadow of death to make your life possible and gave you life out of herself, or else it's a man who works 40 hours a week to put food in your mouth and clothes on your back and pay for your educational bill. And you get a chance to see that it's possible for law and love to meet in a single person. We could keep going with that. It's magnificent to me. And I'm convinced that the person who's never had the privilege of seeing that is going to have a mess of a time thinking the biblical God. But he wants that kind of intimacy with me. I found myself going back to try to recapture that story about one of those desperate moments of the Civil War when Lincoln had all his generals and all his staff in and they were debating the future of the Republic and it wasn't very hopeful at that moment and suddenly the door swung open and in comes Tad and grabs Abe and all the future of the Republic stops for a moment while Tad's problems are taken care of. Now I know some people that are that presumptuous with the eternal God except it may not be presumption. Okay, he wants that kind of intimacy. But what about this marriage bit? 
You see, I have an intimacy with Elsie that I've never known with another person. And it says, the two of you shall become one flesh. And then he says, the church is the body of Christ. You're getting an unbelievable intimacy. Now, is this really a biblical theme? Let me uh, run some things that it took me years to put together. You know, I think I was 38 years of age before I ever preached on the wedding at Cana of Galilee. You know why? Yeah, I didn't know what to do with the wedding at Cana of Galilee. I was a Methodist prohibitionist from North Carolina. What do you do with the wedding at Cana of Galilee? But worse, I could see no significance in it. Because it seemed to me that the that the uh, ministry of Jesus and the Gospel of John is started out on those trivial of reasons. First miracle he ever does, and John calls them signs. Signs of what? He saved a girl's pride by providing refreshments. The great refreshment provider. Now, if I was in the business of explaining the Christ as the one who came to save the world, I wouldn't begin it at an out-of-the-way place with some nameless people and for that kind of inconsequential social situation. I'd have wanted a Cecil B. DeMille extravaganza like the resurrection of Lazarus on the gates of the temple, you know, where everybody would know what was going on. You get the show on the road right. But he began with a wedding. And as I was wrestling with that, I thought, you know, there's some other things about weddings in the Scripture. Could it be because it's a wedding? And then I remembered that's the way the Bible says history began. It didn't begin with, begin with church. It didn't begin with a family. It began with a wedding. And God was the one who provided father of the bride and mother of the groom, if you want to use that language. Anyway, he's the only reason it was there. And I found myself sort of chuckling. Elsie's given me the works on that. Because I can hear, you know, Eve at the breakfast table before she learned to cook. <laughs> and Adam was a little upset with the diet. And she looked back at him and said, don't blame me, blame the management. He tailor-made me for you. Because you'll remember how God came to Adam. It's a magnificent story and said, how do you like it here? Well, he said, it's unbelievable. Well, he said, are you satisfied? Oh, my. Well, he said, are you really satisfied? Well, he said, there's just one problem. There's nobody here that understands me. That's an old line, isn't it? Dare you sometimes, if you know enough to do it, check the word cleave that is used in Genesis 2, where they're to cleave to one another you will find it is a standard term through the rest of the Old Testament for the way Israel is to relate to Yahweh and the way Yahweh relates to Israel. Cleave. The two shall be one flesh. Now, uh, read Hosea. Or read the Song of Songs. I had to do a commentary on the Song of Songs and... Uh, I was not really happy about that assignment <laughs> because uh, that's an elusive thing. And so I spent several years fiddling with the Song of Songs. But I found some fascinating things in the Song of Songs. It's a book that transcends its culture. Do you know there's not a reference to children in the Song of Songs? And it was written in a day when the only way the culture justified marriage was to produce babies. Not a reference to children. The relationship of the husband and the bride and the groom in that book stands on its own feet as legitimate and authentic and doesn't need anything else to authenticate it. But I found something out. Now, you know how it's been allegorically interpreted. I'd much rather talk about analogically because allegory, that, that scares me. But uh, analogically... You know, I thought, if this is true, then she ought to make magnificent speeches about him. <laughs> so I read those speeches rather carefully. Do you know what the longest speeches are? They're not where she talks about him. The longest speeches, the most detailed, 
and the most ecstatic are where he speaks about her. Now you see, I'm dealing with Malchus's ears here and analogies. And I thought, could that be a contradiction to the analogy? And then I thought, wait a minute. You see, I think God ought, I ought to love God more than he loves me because I know me. But you see, it's not on the basis of who we are in the sense that way, it's on the basis of our capacity to love. And do you know I'm finite and he's infinite? And he loves me with an infinite love? And accepts my finite when in return? Of course he loves me more than I love him. I relaxed a little bit with that. <laughs> and I took comfort in that. That's the kind of God we have. He is love, and that's the kind of love he has for every person that exists. And he wants every person in that kind of intimate relationship. And then, of course, that's the way Jesus began his ministry, and then I found these two passages. Let me throw them at you quickly. You know, they came to John the Baptist and said, you used to have big crowds, and now your crowds are all gone. That guy you baptized has stolen them. How do you feel about him taking your crowds? I read that thing for years and missed it. Do you know what he said? Well, he said it's normal at a wedding announcement party for the bridegroom to be more important than the best man. I'm just the best man. He's the bridegroom. And I thought, could it honestly be that John the Baptist saw all of Jesus' ministry in nuptial terms? And then I saw, and I could never see it before. It's amazing to me how I could read right over and never see, never, you know, never grasp them at all. Three times in the synoptics. Jesus, you remember the Pharisees came to him and they said, John's disciples had better religion than yours. John's disciples fast when they pray, but your disciples don't fast when they pray. And Jesus said, pure enigma to me until this point. He said, it's appropriate for the friends of the bridegroom to fast at his wedding announcement party. At a wedding announcement party, the friends of the bridegroom rejoice. The day will be taken when the bridegroom is taken from them, then the friends of the bridegroom will fast. I thought, could it be that Jesus actually understood his role of Savior and Redeemer of the world in nuptial terms? And you know, I found my spirit getting, how do I say it? You're beginning to deal with the numinous, aren't you? Have you ever watched the light in the eye of a fellow who's found the right one or a girl who's found the right one and they've committed themselves to each other? Most beautiful people I've ever seen are either brides or, mo or, or mothers. Put that baby in their lap. It doesn't matter what they've gone through before. Put that baby in their arm and suddenly the glow is there. Well, those two things. Does he want that kind of intimacy? And then I read the book of Revelation, and what is it? The final act is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Suddenly I found I had to preach that parable differently where Jesus told about a king who went into a far country to prepare a wedding for his son. It was in, it was in Jesus' mind, and he thought in those terms. I think because... Everybody you ever bumped into is male or female. We are dealing with sacrednesses of the greatest sort when we come to human sexuality. Okay? Well, I uh, got to that and suddenly I thought something. Now, I must admit I had some help on this. Let me say, I don't believe there's anything original. I, nothing I've got is original. Uh, we all sit on somebody else's shoulders. But I heard an, English, an Anglican New Testament professor by the name of N.T. Wright. If you ever get a chance to hear him, for goodness sakes, do. He's a relatively young man, but an incredible mind and heart. And he was talking along some of these lines, and suddenly it came out of a question and a question and answer period. All I had was a tape, so I couldn't see the scene. And the person said to him, at least that's what I felt. And I, I heard him saying, let me ask you, Dr. Wright, are you suggesting 
that if man had never sinned, the incarnation would have taken place anyway? And I found my heart skipping a beat. And I said, ah, there's a building block there that I've never put in. And Dr. Wright said, the fellow said, do you think the incarnation would have been necessary if man had never sinned? And Dr. Wright said, well, I'm not sure I like the word necessary because God doesn't do anything out of necessity. He works out of love. But he said, if you were to force me yes or no on that question, I'd say yes. And then suddenly I thought, see if you hear me now. When God created man, do you know that he had the incarnation in mind? Because there are no surprises with omniscience. And when God created Adam, if you'll let me use that language, he said, I've got to put him together in such a way that one day I can dwell inside him. I saw in a way I had never seen before the compatibility between man, woman, between human beings and the creator. And there comes the incarnation. And you know what we say? We say that there is one point in the annals of human history that there's one human being, when you touch him, you've touched God. And there's one point in existence where when you touch God, you've touched a human being. The two meet. Now suddenly, for the first time, I decided that there were some things in the New Testament that were not just metaphor. Maybe they were promises. Do you remember when Jesus in chapter 21 of Matthew turned to his disciples and said, you don't realize, but one of these, these days you're going to sit on the 12 thrones of the tribes of Israel and judge Israel. And then I remembered that uh, Paul said, and you know, I thought this was just sort of poetic language, when he said, why do you have lawsuits? Why do you Corinthians? Why do you Corinthian believers go to the public law courts to settle cases? Don't you know that you're going to judge the world? And then two verses later he says, don't you know that you're going to judge angels? You mean you can't settle a case in your church? Then for the first time I read Re Revelation 3.21. You know, I've had some magnificent blocks on the verses before great verses and the verses after great verses. Somewhere or other, when I get in the proximity of a great verse, I lose sight of what's immediately around me. I'm so interested in the peak. But do you know sometimes the greatest views are just a little below the peak? So I can remember in a pastor that I decided to preach a series of sermons on great verses before great verses. And then a series, that led to a series on great verses after great verses. But do you know the verse? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will enter into him and will sup with him, eat with him. We're back to this family thing, you know, this intimacy. Then do you know what the next verse says? Let me read it for you so you'll believe me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Did you hear that? To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, I had seen him on the throne. <laughs> I remember when I first had Revelation 4 and 5 open to me where John looks into heaven, the door is open, and he sees into heaven, and he sees the throne. And when he sees the throne, the one sitting on the throne has a, has a manuscript in his hands, a scroll, and it's sealed with seven seals. And inside that scroll is his future and your future and my future. 
And so the apostle is interested in knowing what that is. And so they search heaven out and the earth out and under the earth to find somebody who's worthy to break the seals and open the future. They can't find anybody. And so he begins to weep apostolic tears. One of the heavenly creatures comes and says, don't weep. There is one worthy to break the seals and open the book. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And he turns to see the lion of the tribe of Judah. And what he sees is the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. In the midst of the throne of God. And you know what I found myself saying? Boy, Mary's baby has come a long way. Sitting in the very center of eternal authority and power and judgment. But you see, if I'd read the chapter before, he said, you know who's going to be sitting with him? His bride. Now, uh, that means that uh, he's looking for an intimacy with us that I never dreamed. He made us for himself. Now, uh, I wish I had the time to go on. But do you know what I found? As I've read church history, do you know the people that have cast the longest shadows in church history? Have been the people who knew some of that kind of intimacy with God. With this, I quit. Now, let me tell you two stories, and I'm through. A few years ago, I was sitting in an office of a publishing house, and they had all the books they published up on the wall, and I noticed a white jacket, and it had in black letters, Latimer. And so I said, is that a biography of Hugh Latimer? And they said, yes. Are you interested? And they handed it to me. And uh, I said, what does it cost? They said, it's not selling very well. Sure. I said, no, I'll be glad to pay for it. No, they said, you can have it. So I took it home and read it. One of the most wonderful stories I've ever read. Hugh Latimer, bishop of the Anglican church. Burned to death and sent in the square in front of, what is it, St. Mary's in Oxford. But the great preacher of the Anglican Reformation. You and I wouldn't be Methodist today if it hadn't been for Hugh Latimer and those that were like him. You will remember that uh, when he preached his final sermon, having completed his five or seven years, whatever it was, of theological training at Cambridge, his final sermon to the university was an attack on Protestantism. And that night, he felt he had done his duty well. That night, late at night, there was a rap on his dormitory door. And he went and opened the door, and here stood little Thomas Bilney. And Thomas Bilney was a part of a group of Bible students who had a room in the White Horse Inn where they kept their Greek New Testaments in the wooden box underneath the wood. And they'd come in and lock the doors because it was dangerous and take their Greek New Testaments and begin to read. And Thomas Bilney had heard Latimer that day. You know what Thomas Bilney thought? If he can attack the gospel that strongly, what a spokesman he'd be. And so it was he rapping on Latimer's door. And when Latimer opened the door and saw his fellow student, Thomas Bilney moved very quickly in, dropped on his knees and grabbed his Latimer's clothes and said, hear my confession. And as a priest, Latimer had no option but to listen to his confession. Bilney told about the hunger in his heart for God and how he sought it in the sacraments, sought it in the church sought it in every way possible and could not find it. And then somebody gave him a New Testament. And as he read, Jesus Christ came to him. And he told that story. And Latimer didn't know what to do with him. And when he left, he left Latimer a Greek Testament. Latimer was, but he was piqued, and so he began reading. And he began reading for Hugh Latimer instead of for the church. Will you hear me on that? And Hugh Latimer came to faith. He became the great preacher. You remember he was under attack. He was thrown in prison. 
But Henry VIII one day sent for him and said, I want you to preach six sermons during Lent. And so Thomas Cranmer came to him and said, Hugh, be careful. <laughs> you don't have to be a fool to be faithful. And so Latimer tells in his journal about how he stood to preach to the king. He said, I stood, read my scripture, and then looked down in my eyes, hit Henry VIII's eyes. And he said, I stepped back and lifted my head and said, Latimer, Latimer, Latimer. You are in the presence of the king. Be very careful. And then he paused and lifted his head again and said, Latimer, 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 you are in the presence of the king of kings. Be very careful what you say. Because it was a life and death matter. And do you know the only way you'll ever preach as a life and death matter is when you know him well enough that you can preach out of that kind of intimacy. They put him in prison. You will remember they came and they uh, refrocked him as a bishop. They put his robe on him. They put him as mitre. They put the staff in his hand. They put the chalice cup in his hand, forced him to hold it. And then they stripped him of all of it. And after they'd stripped him, they sandpapered his hand to get the holy off this excommunicate's hands. And then to put an old smock on him. He looked down and wept. And then he began to stroke his garment, his smock. And he looked up and said, my wedding garment. <laughs> and he walked to the flame. Now, you know what I think we need in our culture and in our society today? Some of us who get close enough to it that we can speak out of that kind of authentic intimacy with him. About four years ago, four and a half years ago, I got a letter from Tianjin, China. A young lady, 28 years of age, an engineer, research engineer. She said, I found Christ and God has called me to be an evangelist and I need biblical training. Could I come to Asbury? And so I thought, that'd be marvelous, wouldn't it? So we checked around and found enough money to take care of her and sent her an acceptance. She went to the U.S. Embassy and the U.S. Embassy said, why do you want to go to college? You're already a university graduate. So they turned her down. So she wrote back and told me what had happened. And so I got her accepted at the seminary, and we scrounged around to see if we could find some money for her. And we sent that information back to her and started a three-and-a-half-year process of negotiation with the U.S. Embassy because the U.S. Embassy didn't want to let her come. A year ago in June, I got a fax from her on the 10th of June, and she said, I believe if I could be accepted again and promised financial support, I might be able to get a visa. We went through the whole process again. On the 10th of August, I got a fax from her with a bunch of questions the embassy still wanted, and she was supposed to be if she was going to school in Wilmore in September. I said, this is never going to happen. But we answered the questions and sent them back. On the 23rd of August, I got a letter from her that said, I will be arriving in Houston, Texas on the 3rd of September. Could somebody pick me up? <laughs> so we decided that was a little long for taxi service to the airport. From, Le from Lexington, Kentucky. So I faxed some stuff back to her. And she came in on the 3rd of September into Lexington. My wife and one of our daughters took her for lunch. She told about her final experience at the embassy. She said, we went through the questions and got all of that. And finally, the American official looked at her and said, okay, one final question. She said, I knew everything was hanging there. And she said, he looked at me and said, would you explain to me the theological significance of the Song of Songs in the Old Testament? I didn't know there was anybody in the U.S. Embassy that knew the Song of Songs was in the Bible. <laughs> and she said, I froze, I froze. 
The only English she had ever known is she had gotten in an English class. She had never been in a group of English-speaking people, so she had to speak in an alien language. She said, How? but she said, suddenly it began to come. And she said, I've looked him straight in the eye and found myself saying, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Sir, that's the second verse of the first chapter of the Song of Songs. And it speaks of my Lord Jesus and his love for me and of my love for him. American embassy official stared, shook his head, shrugged his shoulders, turned to the guy next to him and said, let her go, she's for real. <laughs> All the world knows it when it meets the real thing. And God wants us in the kind of intimacy with him that there's that authenticity when we speak about him. That's what our hearts yearn for. I think I missed a whale of Lottie because I couldn't see the Malchus's ears. We're everywhere in my life. And they're everywhere in everybody's life. And we need to let them know this.